Hi, everybody. Um, welcome. I'm Stefa Doucet and I'm the creator of Black All Year, which is here to remind everyone that Black issues, challenges, achievements and experiences happen all year round and not just in Black History Month. Now, if you've missed previous events, they are available on YouTube and as a podcast. And if you're watching or listening to this after the event, then please like and subscribe as it makes sure that you don't miss any future material and it will also help others to find the content. Today on Black All Year, we're going to be having some anti-racist discussions. And this is a, a bit of an experiment. It's the first time I've done this as a live event. But I have um, a couple of people that are going to join me in this experiment. And I hope that you who are attending are going to join us as well. So I have with us Lou Jane Alassi and Jamie Conway. So let me just quickly introduce them. So Lou Jane is the media communications officer for a local charity based in Newcastle upon Tyne, which is called Success for All CIO and um, is a non-executive director for Newcastle Creates and also a freelance journalist. Before she joined Success for All, Lou Jane pursued a career in the built environment sector as an architectural technologist, I wish I knew what that meant, but it sounds really, really clever, um, where she worked on a range of national and international new build and refurbishment projects. Whilst at university, Lou Jane served as the education coordinator for the Chartered Institute of Architectural Technology Aspiration Group and was a community reporter for a hyperlocal news outlet, Jesmond Local. Now, Jamie has been EDI manager for people in the Newcastle Pontine Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust since September 2021. And she previously worked for Northumbria Police and the Northeast Ambulance Service, holding similar EDI roles. Prior to this, she worked with adults with disabilities and supported asylum seekers. And Jamie has won skills the Skills for Care Accolade Award for her work with adults with learning disabilities and the National Ambulance LGBT Gold Star for Life and has been nominated for the 2022 Northern Power Women Want to Watch Award. And she really believes that her role is to create a safe and inclusive environment where people have the choice to bring as much of themselves as they want into work. And that's on their terms, not on ours. So welcome to you both. I'm absolutely delighted that you have agreed to join me in this. Um, I think, it, you know, hopefully it's going to be a really interesting and exciting um, experience. So shall we launch straight into our first question? And I have actually got the cards here. I've got to be careful where I hold them so you can see them. But this is actually from something called the Anti-Racist Deck. So this is the deck. It's actually 100 cards. Um, which are conversation starters, and it's been produced by Ibram X. Kendi. You can buy them online um, if, you, if you want to get them. And the idea is that you can either use them for yourself, you can use them in small groups, large groups, however you want, but let us start conversations about racism and anti-racism. So the first question I'm going to ask is, when did you first become aware of racism? So, Lujane, I can see you're not muted, so I'm going to come to you. Go first. for it. Yeah, why not? Um, thank you for the introduction, Steph. It's wonderful to be here and to have others join in, joining us in the discussion. For me, the first time I sort of was aware that I was different and that I didn't necessarily belong was very early on in my childhood years. So I was actually born in Libya, um, but my parents moved here when I was very young. 
And the first time I was sort of aware of it was when I was in primary school um, around year five. So I was, what, eight, nine? And it was one particular day in school, and I still remember it very clearly, like as if it was only yesterday. And I went into school for the first time trying out hijab, which is the, the head covering. And for the first time, I felt as though something wasn't right. Um, there was a group of girls, very young, um, who just sort of started taking the mickey, um, saying that I couldn't read, um, I couldn't speak, that I was all these sort of negative rhetorics of Islamophobia that we see today. Um, but I experienced that very early on. And as time went moving into secondary school, it moved away from the younger people sort of picking it up to older people. And that's the really weird and scary thing about it all. Um, the first time that I was sort of verbally abused in the streets was by a group of old men in the street as I was walking home from school. And that was because I was wearing the hijab and I was just minding my own business, walking home. And this group of really old men, I would say mid sort of really old and they were just sort of coming at me and I was like whoa, wait what, what's going on here you know you have it when you're young and you just sort of rub it off it's in school you know they're just children and you just sort of rub it off but when it's older people that's when it sort of really struck me in a way yeah and I find what you say interesting Lou Jane because it's that layering, isn't it? it? It's not just racism as well. There's that Islamophobia that's layered on top of it. And I have noticed I quite often wear shawls and things. And if I've got my hair straight, if it's raining, I'll put the shawl over my head and I'm more likely to get shouted at because I've got yeah. a shawl over my head than, yes. than I haven't. And, and it's just, yeah, it's it's strange. And interesting as well that you, you came to this country and it, it'd be good to kind of, you were very young, but I think there'll be another question coming up where it might be interesting to kind of look at the difference yeah. there and what you experienced there. Jamie, what about you? When did you first become aware of racism? Um, so, uh, firstly, thank thanks for having us here today. It's really nice to be here, um, and thank you for the lovely introduction. Um, for me, the first time I became aware of racism was probably in primary school. Um, my dad. He, he traveled a lot so he traveled um the world with work and was really frequently away um quite a lot and because of him traveling I became really aware I, he would always come home and I'd be fascinated with where's he been what's he been doing and he was a really good storyteller so he would tell me lots of stories about other people's culture and experiences and where he'd been and um I always used to ask him what he did that was our conversation what have you eaten this time and and, and I just really loved to learn about uh, about things and um because of that exposure my, my parents were really quite quite good at having really quite open conversations around language and the importance of it and I remember in school obviously people will be aware of, of kind of how corner shops would be referred to the terminology and language that was used when people would order an Indian takeaway or a Chinese takeaway and I remember asking my mum and dad about why people would call those different things to what we would in our family, what that meant, what it, and, and they had lots of conversations with me. And I remember being really, and I think that comes from a place of privilege, but I was really quite baffled by it. I just didn't understand it. My parents were telling me that 
it was really important to not use language and this is what it meant. But yet my experience around my peers who were all children, it was just so flippant. It just came came out. It wasn't even that there was that recognition. Um, and I think, yeah, it was, it was definitely primary school where I started to understand that there was something there and that actually for me, what was more confusing was the lack of of interest for other people to find out about that and understand the language they were using and what it is they were saying and the places where that came from, um, which I think is still really common today. I think it starts very young when people use words and language and behaviours, not fully understand an impact. Yeah. And and if anybody who's kind of joining us today wants to, to join in, please just raise your hand and we'll come to you. I think for me, um, it's interesting, actually, it probably was primary school as well. And I think it was, it's looking back on it now, I realised that that stuff was racist, but it was, it was the being made to feel different. So, so like you say, some of the terminology you used to have, um, for those of you that are old enough, there used to be a, a particular chocolate bar and it used to go nuts. So the, the jingle went nuts, so hazelnuts, Cadbury's make them and they cover them in chocolate. And I would have particularly boys in the playground singing that at me. And I, I can remember thinking, well, I like chocolate. What's the problem in that? But but now that I'm an adult, I recognise what it was. And it, and it was the, so why are you singing that to me and not realising that, that that was a bad thing? And the follow-up question on this one, which I, I really love this question, I, I think I should ask it more, is when did you first become aware of your race? So, Jamie, I'm going to ask you, when did you first become aware of your race? So I'm aware of the deck, Steph, and obviously we talked about some of the questions. And for me, this is a question that I've really struggled to answer in my brain. And I think that comes from a place of my whiteness, if you like, because I think privilege has allowed me to not ever consider my race. And I think, um, obviously, in the profession that I, I, I'm in and as an adult, I do think it's something, but certainly not as a child. It wasn't something I, I ever thought of. It wasn't something that I considered it wasn't something I was aware of I don't have a definitive moment in time that I can look back on and say that's when it clicked that's when things changed in my mind and I think that's really symptomatic of <laughs> um the point of privilege if you like when I when I say that and I think that that frustrates me almost and it's something it's a question I would like to be able to answer but I think um it's really difficult to do so. I think there's been environments where I've been made to feel aware of my race, but that's few and far between, but it's not, there isn't a definitive point in time, but I recognise that for other people that might be very, very different. Yeah. And I think for me, it, it's just simply a case of, I can't remember a time when I haven't been aware of, of my race. Um, I, I think I've always been aware that I was black and that I was mixed heritage and yeah, I can't, I can't ever think of a time when that hasn't been very clear to me that, that that's who I was and that was a, a part of me. So, yeah, and, and as you say, it, it is that that real difference, I think. Jane, I'm interested. This is one of the things that I find sometimes when I speak to people who've come to the UK, that their experience is different to mine. What about you? I would say... For the first part of my childhood, I, I wasn't really aware of it. Um, I didn't really, even now that I look back, I, I, I just saw myself as another child. But again, that comes from a place of privilege. 
you know, I I was very much very white passing, if I could say, growing up. Um, but it was around when I could speak English that I was aware that I'm not British um, and that I, I'm not from here. Um, and it was really around the 9-11 um, events that brought it to light because people particularly in school, made me feel as though I wasn't from England, even though up until that moment, I felt very much, oh, I speak, now that I could speak English, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm English, I'm British, you know, um, I didn't consider myself Libyan, I didn't really associate with it as much. But with those events, it sort of changed the way that I sort of saw myself and the way others saw myself. And that's when I knew that, you know, no matter what I did, I was never, never going to fit in. Um, and that's when I sort of started becoming aware, you know, it's just, you're you're always not going to be like everyone else, no matter how hard you try to fit in or how Geordie your accent is or any of that, you are always not going to be British enough. Um, and sort of, it did take a lot of time for me to sort of embrace that, um, particularly as a third culture kid, when you don't feel like you belong to either, for example, Britain or Libya, um, people back in Libya will be like, oh, no, you're too, you're too British to be Libyan. And then here it's like, no, no matter what you do, you're not British enough. You're always going to be Libyan and you're always going to be treated as though you're not British. Um, so that's all. Yeah, so it started off, I wasn't really aware. Um, I didn't really under that. I wasn't aware of what ethnicity means or what race was. And even till today, it's sort of still learning about, you know, what box is it that you tick? Um, on the censuses, am I white? Am I um, other? Am I Arab? Am I North African? Like sort of where where do I fit in all of these boxes and categories? Yeah. And and it, it's interesting. I know there are others who who on the call who um who have come to the country perhaps as adults. And I I remember one of the things that Ngozi Cole said in I think it was Power and Privilege um, when we did that um, Black All Year. And she said it was when she came to the UK from Nigeria as an adult that she realised she was black. She never realised she was black until that point. And it wasn't that she didn't realise she was black. It was that actually that wasn't an issue. She was just gozy and everybody around her was the same. So why why was it a big deal? And just to pick up on something, because I'm, I'm a real language person, and you said about being white passing, and I I... I ask people not to use that term. So, I mean, I'm not telling you off, but the reason I say that is actually it's not an exam. This isn't about you You kind of, you you pass or you fail. Um, I know exactly what you mean. You know, people sometimes think that you're white because you, you look like you could be white, but that it's the use of the term passing. It makes it sound like there's something, that it's an achievement. And, and you know, it's, it's the, how that language is just in our culture. And we don't recognize it a lot of the time, but actually there's very often our language is about fair is good and dark is not. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's it, but it's a term I hear so often from black and brown people about being white passing. Um, so, yeah. Should we, unless anybody wants to join in, should we move on to another question? Oh, Melanie, yes, please. I, I just wanted to pick up uh, something Lujane said about the census um, my children are black and I had to fill in 
the census, when the first time they asked that question, was it 91, 1991, when they first asked that question, and there was a fine of something like £400 for, for not filling it in. Uh, but there was no there was no option for people of different ethnicities to live in the same house. I don't know if that's changed now, but I, I just put down earthling as I was so cross. Um, I thought, what are they doing? Because I can't put down I'm black because I'm white. And I can't put down my children are white because they're not. And every time they walk down the street, the police remind me of that. But um, so I just put earthling and a young black guy. I think they sent students around to check on um, people's forms. He came to, to collect the form and he sat down at the kitchen table. And I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. And um, he got to that question. He looked at looked at it and he looked at me and said, very good. <laughs> and I never heard another thing about it. So I didn't get a £400 fine at least. And and I think, I mean, the census is still really pro problematic. So you can be white and black. You can be white and South Asian. Um, but you can't be black and South Asian. You can't be um, East Asian and black you can't so there's the only way you can be mixed is if you're mixed with white um and then there are so many other yeah um and, and the, but there are so many that just aren't aren't in there and I think one of the big things that people talk about is the fact that I still to this day can't tick on a form that I am mixed heritage black British there is no way for me to say I'm British when I'm talking about my ethnicity. So I can be white English, but I can't be black English. Um, so, yeah, the census is still very, very problematic. So shall we um, move on? So next question, um, and I'll pop this one to Jamie first, I think, is have you ever felt fear based on your appearance and I'll ask the follow-up question at the same time actually have you ever anticipated that your identity or body or age or ethnicity would be the cause of ridicule harm or hatred um yes I have um and and that has been um because people's perception but then also reality so as part of my role um you can imagine that I um are often attend various different events um, and, and dress appropriately to do so. So quite often um, at events like Pride or any LGBT events, people will perceive me to um, not be straight and they will, um, I have experienced people shouting things at the street at me when I've had rainbow lanyards on. Um, and I've also had um, an attempt at assault because I am a woman, so I, I absolutely have experienced those. But I do feel that as a woman, that there are some similarities in terms of um, the harm that can come my way. But I understand that obviously when you add and layer in people's protected characteristics, as a white woman, I am still far more privileged than, the, um, for instance, a black woman. So I completely understand that. And the support and follow-up care that might happen following something like that is very different in my experience as a white woman to, to that of um, 
a person of colour. And I think the it's not every day. There's a lot of environments where I'm safe. There's a lot of times and I, I have confidence in the support that I will receive. But I recognise absolutely that that is not the case for other individuals. And I think that difference is, is quite frightening. And that's where, for me, a lot of the work that I look into is understanding the data that reflects that. But the frustration for me is that there doesn't seem to be an appetite for that data. There seems to be um, an appetite for a little bit like what I've explained there, a like for people to, to relate a likeness, if you like. Well, that happens to other people. It's almost like when we talk about gender, you have men saying, what about me? Um, it, it's There's always a similarity. And I think it's really important that actually, yes, the question that you've asked is, have I experienced that I have and the reasons that I have are for those reasons. But... The, the, the point I'd like to make is that actually I recognise it's very different when we're talking about race um, and the support and follow-up and, and recognition, I think, sometimes. There isn't even the recognition that those things have happened. Um, is really important to note. Yeah, and I think, you know, you, we just have to look at some of the public reactions to some high-profile cases, don't we? And, and actually when it's been um, equally tragic, but a, a white, blonde woman it's been national news and everybody's been protesting and sobbing about it. And then it's a it's a black woman and it goes largely unremarked on. Um, so, yeah, it, it it is different. But I think there's something for me that that as a woman and as a black woman, you're right. There is that commonality. There is that feeling. And for me, there's something about. Even though the times of actual physical um, attack or harm have been fortunately very low the anticipation and the fear that that is going to happen is significant and it affects the way I behave and the things I do um so things like I won't necessarily go into some public places because I am concerned about what might happen if I do that or I will only go into those spaces if I have people that I feel will have my back can't think of another way of putting it but you know I will I, there are some people who I know absolutely if something happened they would be there for me and there are a lot of others I don't have that confidence in and therefore I adjust where I go and how I behave based on who I'm with a lot of the time um, and I'm sure you'll you'll kind of have a similar feeling from that and um, being a woman um but it's almost like it, it's doubled down when you're black. I've been in groups of women where I've been singled out for sexual harassment. And the only reason I can think that that's happened is because of my ethnicity layered on top of me being female. So, Lou Jane, what about you for that question? Yes, in, in short, yes. And it's it's it shouldn't be the case in a in a society that we're in. It really shouldn't we shouldn't feel like we're not safe and we shouldn't be attacked and we shouldn't be abused. Um, but it's something that I've grown up with. Um, so I grew up on a, a council estate and the first time we sort of moved, we would have our windows smashed. Um, we would have things thrown on my dad's car. Um, but then you go away from home and you get drivers just shouting things at you um you get rocks thrown at you you get eggs thrown at you and this is sort of something I've experienced throughout was that people just want just attack the attacking nature of it but over the years um 
it's been more verbal and so whether it's in public transport i've had drivers of public transport just sort of making me feel unsafe and it's been reported but then the companies just do nothing about it um i've had random people just spit at you at me um so it's it's something that i've experienced quite a lot and I, again it's a i'm a woman i'm a visibly muslim woman so it makes me a really easy target and the really frustrating part is it's more mainly by men and it makes me just sort of like if you want to free a muslim woman why make her feel like she's nothing and why abuse her what what so that's something that i really struggle to get to the bottom of um but at the same time it become when it comes to reporting cases i've never reported a case my parents have never reported but the one time i did report a case was last year and the system just completely failed so i was like you know what if it happens again i'm never going to report islamophobia or any sort of attacks in public you have the records of them my we've got video footage um and everything but it still seems to be not enough and it's always about proving oh did you say something did you instigate the attack um and it's like i really we do, i don't need this so the systems that are in place just seem to fail at every hurdle and it's yeah, it's just a shame. Yeah. It really, it really is. And it's interesting, isn't it? That that approach of you must have done something wrong. Yeah. And again, it has that those echoes of the, the way that women are treated when something happens. It's the well, what did you do what to did, provoke yeah. that? And I had a really interesting conversation with somebody who is quite senior in an organization. And they were saying they want to change that in the organization. They want to move from this idea of you must have done something wrong and do you have proof and where's your evidence too so what can we do about this yeah. how can we change this behavior instead of actually making the the victim for a better term feel like they have to they have to um defend the attack that they exactly yeah so particularly with this case and it was the first time you know it was a really busy space I had my younger siblings with me and luckily enough we actually recorded the conversation and the attack sent that to the police and they were like it doesn't show who started it like what do you mean it doesn't show who started it did you say anything before we can't identify the person okay cool where does that leave me you know and it's like the whole the whole process is again is it who was it trying to protect and why the and why yeah and and we'll we'll probably come on to that yeah. thing of of how systems are set up mm. um in certain ways um does anybody want to to come into this question because like i say please please let us know if you do and just while we're waiting in case anybody does i think as well that thing that you said it, it's men that, that are doing the attacking i think yet yeah, often it is but that's that layering again of misogyny layered with racism um and also there's that thing of, well, actually, do they think we're going to turn around and attack them physically? No. We're a, we're a safe, a safe bet to to single out. Um, but the, that that's a really good example of that, that layering, that sectional intersectionality that goes on, where um they don't just attack us because we're female, they attack us because we're female and we're black or brown or or whatever. 
So systems, which, sorry, Steph, I was just going to say the system supports that, though, doesn't it? It enables that behaviour because the response that Lou Jean has received is just abysmal. It, it, it to kind of have it's almost like that asking for it approach, isn't it? It's well, what did you do? Did you start it? It's irrelevant how the conversation started when you're presented with evidence that someone has been racially abused, then. That, that is there. There is no justification in that, regardless of behaviour prior. It's not tip for tat. It is this happened and there are consequences to this, but there always seems to be an approach in, well, what did you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were you wearing? What were you seeing? What were you doing? How did you engage with them? And, and that that is irrelevant in this, which is really difficult in policing for people to understand because there's always a reason why that they search for when actually there needs to be an acceptance of what has happened. Yeah, and actually that reminds me of quite a lot of the tone policing that goes on on social media. So um, my personal style is to be quite gentle when I'm um, picking people up about their racism, sexism, homophobia or whatever, and I tend to take a kind of a a, very, a quite gentle and educational style. Some people don't do that and that's their personal style and they can be more full on and and more um, accusatory for, for want of a better term. I can't think of a, that's not a very good way of describing it, but they will be very full on and direct and not mince their words at all. I see those people all the time being told that the reason that they're getting the abuse is because of their tone. And if you just, if you weren't so aggressive, that lovely term, if you weren't so aggressive in the way that you raised this, then maybe people wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And what people seem to forget is the reason that they're commenting or raising the point is because they've already had the racism. It's not the other way around. So the fact that they're saying, how dare you do this, is as a a response to an attack. And how they choose to respond to that attack is perfectly legitimate. So, yeah, that, that, you know, that tone policing, that that way of telling us how we should respond and how we should behave happens all the time. It's so pertinent within a lot of the work that we look at in terms of when we're looking at disciplinary, grievance, tribunals in the workplace. There is kind of this perception of how a person should react to experiencing an issue. Um, And actually their reaction is talked about more than what caused the reaction. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be a complete lack of understanding of the compounded effect of when people are experienced and constant microaggressions. There's a, there's a video, an animation that's really kind of common and it explains it as mosquito bites and it's the mosquito bite effect around actually one mosquito bite not bother you, two or three can become quite irritating and itchy throughout the day. But actually if you are constantly experiencing those mosquito bites, you're not going to respond in a way that is the norm or the accepted way of this. And actually what what we tend to see is that people are more focused on um, dealing with the person's reaction because that goes in the easier box because there's a set of standards, there's policy, there's procedure that if you behave like this, then we can react like that. And actually it's the confidence of people addressing the root cause, the issues and having those brave conversations. It just gets put in the too difficult that's a bit uncomfortable oh what's the easy fix yeah yeah I can remember having it on on a LinkedIn post actually where 
I was talking about exactly that. It was a it was a microaggression, um, and I chose not to address it in the moment because, well, for for a whole host of reasons. But I'd that microaggression had made me feel othered, and one of the main reasons I didn't address it in the moment was because then I would be othering myself even more. And when I raised this point, and I, you know, I didn't name anybody. I was very careful to to keep things anonymous. And I said, you know, this is an example of a microaggression and this this was the result of it. And I was attacked on social media by some people who actually I was really quite shocked by because their their posts were all about equality. Um, And and why didn't I deal with it then? And what an aggressive stance I was taking in taking to LinkedIn. And I should have I should have directly confronted the individual. Now, I did actually speak to the individual some weeks later about it, and they were lovely and they responded brilliantly to it. And they they reflected on what had happened and said, yes, actually, you're probably right. That probably is what went on. And I didn't realize it. And I'm going to really think about my interactions because I wasn't aware that that was a thing that I did. Um, So I then went back as a follow up and said, this is how you respond to this. This is excellent. This It really made me feel validated. Whereas all of the rubbish that went on in response to the post really made me feel really attacked and um, just furthered the othering that that had already gone on. But it's back to that expectation that it was you had done something, isn't it, Steph? It's around that the responsibility to fix that was with you. And they didn't, it wasn't palatable how you chose to fix that at that time. And that's the frustration because what you should have saw there is effective allyship around people taking that forward or actually respect for what had happened. But what you saw was that you should have done this, you should have done that. And it's that's really nice as an approach to problem solving when you have psychological safety, but it's the lack of recognition of that not being there. That's it. Right, let's move on to another card. So this is anti-racist discussions, and this one's probably the most direct about about anti-racism. So what does not racist mean? And the follow-up for that is, why are so many people invested in believing that they're not racist? Lou Jane, do you want to go first on this one again? Yeah, that was a really hard question. I saw that and I was like, this is sort of, it's really hard. Because my first and... Yeah, my first instinct is just sort of to think of it as a defense mechanism and sort of as a shield. So if somebody says something that is clearly racist, their natural instinct is to defend their reasoning behind it. Yeah, I'm but laughing. I'm just thinking of I'm not racist, but oh, yeah. I'm about to say something really. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, why? No, just stop. Just stop before you continue, because clearly you know that there is something wrong with what you're about to say but you just don't understand why it is or you don't understand the impact it's going to have on the person that you're speaking to or the community that you're referring to. And it's like, also, it's not good enough to be not racist. We need to be anti-racist. You know, if you can be comfortable in saying that you're not racist, then you're a bystander to racism. You're just allowing it to happen without addressing the issues. You're allowing people just to continue with their ways. Um, So I think 
whether you're not racist, even if you're not racist, it's still not enough. You know, in in society that we're in, you need to be more than not racist. You need to be anti-racist. You need to be able to hold people to account, to call out injustice and inequality and to sort of make a difference. So I hope that answers it, but it is a really hard one. Yeah. yeah, it is. It, and I think that's why why people struggle with it so much and while ago, but I'm not racist. I'm not racist. I'm not racist. And it's like, yeah, but are you anti-racist? And it's it's a anti-racist, I think, is a relatively new term that people are trying to get their heads around. Jamie, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, totally. And I love um the way Abram talks about it in his book around that. And I, I think for me, the challenge I've had with some people is when they say I'm not racist, I, I always say, but for them before they can and I say I say the but because you're about to say something and I, I kind of lead that conversation to talk about the importance of if it's a statement that you shouldn't have to say if you're really not it should be evident in your words your behavior um, and your approach it isn't something that if you need to articulate it it's almost why do you feel the need to say that there's something that you're trying to prove here and I think for me not racist is not bothered which is worse so I talk about what you permit, you promote. So if you're allowing this behavior, you're validating it by saying there's no problem here. And that for me is where you move into anti-racist, where it needs to say action. It needs to see the what next. And I think um, I, I read his book, um, Ibram's book, quite a while ago when it first came out. I know there's an updated um version, which I do. It is on my to-be-read list. Um, and one of the the kind of things that I really enjoyed around that is kind of how people how it's fluid that people can move and it's almost like the people that will use the term I'm not racist they're so desperate to be able to wear that as a badge when actually I think it's around moving from um, anti-racist isn't something that I think a lot of people can can do easily all the time because there's so much education that needs to take place. So it's moving from that. And I think it's when, particularly within the world of EDI that I work in, um, there's, there's a lot of, because we deal with all of the protected characteristics, if you like, and quite often we'll support so many different networks, there's a lot of pull. Um, and you might have saw the, the 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 saying around EDI, it's not like pie, there's plenty of it to go around, but everyone perceives any focus, if you like, on one, one area as being taken away from another. And I think sometimes it's around that when you're in these roles, there's only so much that you can do all of the time. And actually moving from anti-race has been constantly driving that forward. The second that you put something down, if you like, can sometimes be perceived as the well, it's not racist to put it down, but actually systematically, institutionally, are we letting this go? It needs to be a constant focus and it needs to be bigger than one person, if you like. And I think that's, yeah, I think quite often individuals use the not racist, but I think policies and procedures like to badge themselves as not racist, but don't look deep enough into that. And for me, I think to say not racist is really translated into not enough. You're not doing enough. You're not bothered. It's And to be indifferent is worse than to even think something, whether it be on the positive or the negative, at least you have passion. Yeah. And, and um, I've, I've shared a link um, to a BBC Bite Size by John Amici. Um, and I, I actually saw it just a week or so ago about not racist and anti-racist it's a really good explanation of it and what i love is when he says 
if you're not a racist, somebody will say something racist in your presence and you'll go away and then you and your group will sit and you'll go, oh, did you hear what they said? Wasn't that terrible? Aren't they racist? If you're anti-racist, you will go and you will confront that person, hopefully in the moment, but it's not always safe to do that. But you'll confront that person and you will say, no, what you did, what you said was racist. And that's the difference. It's that it's that um, positive act, taking positively taking action rather than, as you said, Lou Jane, being a bystander and and kind of going under your breath. And I think what we've seen over the last 40, 50 years is the development of lots of people who go, oh, isn't it terrible? But yeah. not enough people who will actually do something about that mm-hmm. and will actually be actively anti-racist. Um, and I can certainly think of a lot of occasions where um, racist things, incidents have happened and everybody shook their heads and said, oh, it's terrible, but nobody's done anything. But as you said, Jamie, more often it's when that racism is built into the system of what we do or where we live or that type of thing. And when it's pointed out to people, they'll go, oh, oh, yeah, that's terrible but they don't actively do anything to change it. They just accept that it's terrible. They accept that five women are five times more likely to die in childbirth if they are black and if they're white. Oh, it's terrible. That's that's terrible. But they do nothing about it. And that's the, the really sort of dangerous part. And that's the, you can be oblivious and you can be sort of, you, you may not know, but it's when you know that it's, the impact that it's going to have and not do anything that's in my opinion that's way more dangerous than someone who may not know the impacts of using certain words but then for policies or individuals who know the implications of racism on people and still continue to go on as though it means nothing that's that's the scary the scariest part of it all and it's sort of we're seeing it now in 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 the world that we're living in is that people know the danger of it but for some for some reason they just choose not to do anything and it is a choice for them at this point in time and that's and that's not okay and that we we need to be doing more um yeah I totally agree Lujane but do you not think that that actually when people turn around and they'll so say for instance the the figures that you've just mentioned there Steph you'll have individuals in that area say oh, that's so terrible that it happened, but I'm not racist. Yeah. So they think that because they, they perceive themselves as not racist, operating in a system that actually disproportionately impacts people, they, it's almost like they, their personal view that they have of themselves allows them to release any accountability. So it's kind of like, well, well, I don't feel like that. So it's not my problem. There's nothing within my gift to, to do to fix that. And actually that's where... The hunger needs to be, and that's where we get move into anti-racist around these. This is what the data says. What are we going to do about it? Because it's not enough for people to say, "Well, I'm not racist," because the system that you're operating in and the impact of your behaviour actually is creating that disproportionality. So, what what else are we going to do around that? It's the lack of accountability that comes with that. It's almost like, well, so what? It just happens. That's it. We we come to terms with it. We've got a name for it, but we just allow it to happen yeah and yeah it's not it's, it's not good enough yeah. or even, sure even 
So carry on, Joe. Yeah, we just just shouldn't take it and we shouldn't accept it. Um, and I think this is why this sort of discussion, these sort of discussions are really important because it just shows that, you know, we see it, we know it, and we are going to hold people to account. I mean, it does take a lot. Of, it does take someone who's confident enough to be able to speak up. But if we empower one another, eventually change will happen. Yeah. And I think perhaps slightly more, but what I, what I hear a lot now is, well, if we just stopped talking about this stuff and we just stopped pointing out our differences, then racism would disappear. <laughs> and it's that, you know what, no. Yeah. Because, yes, I was born and brought up in Newcastle. I have a white mother. Um, I've been in predominantly white institutions all of my life. But I'm still different and I still have cultural differences. And you know what? They're really important to me. And they've made me who I am. They, I can see them every day in the way that I interact with people and the way I work and, and all of that. So if you're just not going to pay any attention to that you're denying me who I am and you know what people will still be racist it doesn't stop just because we don't talk about it it's like you know oh well if we stop talking about gender then sexism would disappear no because that's what it used to be like and we had sexism what a surprise yeah Um, it's like someone who anyone who would say that clearly has no idea of what it's like to have lived 10, 20, 30, 50, 60 years ago, they have no idea what, how scary it was. Um, so that's, that is coming from a place of privilege. You know, it's, whilst we may have a long way to go, we've come a long way as well. So it's, it, yeah, anyone who says that needs to um, check, check their privilege. Yeah. Yeah. There's a very famous black person who's recently said something similar to that. And that's exactly the response that they're getting is you you need to recognize the privilege that you have now mm-hmm. um and uh and just realize that you 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 do have that and and uh actually even with all of that privilege they're still being discriminated against mm-hmm. they just don't see it yeah so we've got uh, <laughs> a few minutes left sorry Jamie were you going to speak then Yeah, I was just going to say, I think for me, the people that want to stop the conversations are because they're not palatable to them. They don't feel comfortable to have those conversations because, let's face it, there's not many people in in any organisation I've worked in who are comfortable having these conversations. And, And one of the things we talk about is actually you need to get more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Nobody ever decides, right, okay, I want to go to the gym and walks into that gym that first day and throughout that process goes, this feels great. This is so wonderful. Change doesn't happen easily. It's not supposed to be a process that feels positive and great all along the way. It's supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to be challenging. And I think we have this expectation that if it doesn't feel comfortable, we'll just stop talking about it. It'll be fine because that's nice. I've heard what you've said, but... We'll, we'll just move on because we've got the real job to get on with here. There's there's priorities that we need to do. And actually, it's not recognising that because there's an area of discomfort. And I think for me, obviously, in my role, I, I deal with all of the protected characteristics. And I think race is the most difficult conversation for people to have. It's uh, we, We're not at a place where people can comfortably have those discussions in organisations that I've worked in. Well, we still have people do the whole thing of they don't like to, see, to use the term black, so they go black 
and kind of mouth it as if it's something wrong and dirty and rude and and it's kind of like you know what just get over it um I I, I quite often people will say to me well Steph you're black and I go am I oh, wow I didn't realize you know because actually um it, it, it inserts that little bit of humor into things, which hopefully makes people feel more comfortable about talking about some of this stuff. But you're right. Some of it's not comfortable and you just have to accept that. And some of it is stuff that you've done and you just have to accept that mm. as well. And just don't do it again. Learn from it. Don't do it again. Um, it's, it's when you keep repeating the same thing, even though, you know, as you said, Lou Jane, even though, you know, that is wrong, that's discriminatory, that that's when it becomes a real problem. I'm going to move on to the next question now. And I will just repeat, none of us are experts here. Um, so please, if you've got a, a point that you'd like to make, please um, kind of come on and, and make the point or ask a question. And um, I'm going to come to you first on this one, Jamie. So it's how are community and institutional spaces racialized? And have you ever entered a space where you were not part of the dominant racial group present? And how did that feel? Uh, I think there's lots of ways that that happens and I think for me I have limited experience as to how that feels but I know that within my role we create equality impact assessments and that's something that um, people aren't comfortable with but an equality impact assessment is a way of kind of understanding environments, policies, procedures, decisions, how they disproportionately impact certain groups and when we start to do those people just automatically fill them out and go no not relevant, not relevant, not relevant and it, for me it's around kind of facilities so if we look at what facilities are there to support people of different faiths um, in terms of things and when we look at in terms of disability in terms of access to spaces if we look at times that places are open and um, the, the the actual physical location of places where it is where it's advertised where it's promoted all of those things can really kind of determine who accesses or how easy it is to access a space and that's taken away the human element of behavior and people out of those spaces and I think that's the biggest kind of factor if you like um but I think in terms of entering a space where I wasn't part of the dominant racial group this is something that obviously because of um, my whiteness it isn't something that has frequently happened and, and I know we talked about I, I went to visit an African community group doing some engagement when I worked in a previous organization um and I walked in and their, their experience, it was a, a time when I worked for the ambulance service and their experience of the ambulance service was, was negative in their mind and um, they weren't keen to see me. And when I walked through the doors, then everyone had a seat. There was no seat made for me. Um, so I perched myself on a stack of, of mats that were there to talk to people. Everybody um, were given drinks. Um, there were homemade donuts that were passed around and everyone was really smiley. And I was very much on the peripheral of the group. And, and I was made to feel very not welcome. And it was the first time that I'd been in a group um, situation where there was just me um, who was white and and the, actually there was that feeling um, and I was really, really conscious of it. And we got into the conversations and it became really evident as to why people didn't have that view, um, a positive view of the services that I was there to represent Um and that was absolutely understandable. And for me, I had to go away and really understand what had happened. And I looked into individual incidents and I found resolution with the group. Um, and that that wasn't just 
go away, make a phone call, come back and say, ta-da, I've fixed it. it. There was real work that went on there and there was, it was over a really long period of time that I engaged with that group. Um, and we had a conversation and they said to me, we wanted you to feel how we feel. It was all deliberate and it was evident to me that it was deliberate. Um, and they, they said to me, we wanted you to feel that because it was important. It was our way of lashing out almost. And we wanted you to experience what it feels like to walk into a room and be the only person like you. We wanted you to feel that actually that expectation of just walking into a room and being smiley and nice and doing all of the things that society has taught you in terms of how to get on with people still doesn't work. We wanted you to feel powerless like we do. And, and for me, it was, I'm so grateful for that experience because people tell me about those things, but experiencing it and feeling it is something totally different. And it was, it was a really defining experience for me in terms of, I get it, I get it. And it, it, and it was a one-off, but it was, and that for me is even more powerful because it, it happens so frequently. Um, and it, it was really... Yeah, it was really powerful to be on the other side of, of that. And it wasn't pleasant, but it was, I took from it um, a lot of learning. And I think we, we then had a really positive uh, relationship and they actually made me donuts, especially for the next time that I went. Um, but, so I'd like to think that, that we'd turn things around. But I, I do think that there's a lot of my colleagues who wouldn't have responded in that way. And I think it's around actually um, being open to, to that. And I think yeah yeah and Lujane forgive me but we're, we're short on time so I'm not going to come to you on this one because uh, I want to get to one more but I'm just going to share um and it's something that that Jamie and I have discussed so there's a um I'm going to try and keep it as anonymous as possible there were, there were a group of young people who went abroad to West Africa and went into a very big open market so it's an open air market very big very bustling and some years later one of those young people um, lodged a, a complaint and said that they had felt very uncomfortable in the market because people kept calling out at them and um, and and kind of you know trying to attract their attention. Now I've been to this place and I've been to that market, and I know what they'll have been doing. They'll have been going. I've used the term Bruni, which basically means um, a Bruni means foreigner. And they'll have been called, hello, hello. So it wasn't even coming by this. It was, it's that greeting that was going on. And reflecting on it, I, I was sad in two ways. I was sad when it initially happened that that young person hadn't said, this is how I felt in the market. Because to me, there was an excellent learning experience as why. Why was it you felt uncomfortable? Because actually, everybody was being friendly. Everybody was calling out because you were an obviously white person in a, a place full of black people. So what was it that made you feel uncomfortable? Was it actually your underlying biases that made you feel unsafe? Because nothing anybody was doing there was unsafe or, or, or kind of would make you feel unsafe if everybody had been white. My second regret was later on, so many years later, when that then adult raised those concerns, is that that question wasn't put to them then. Because I think, again, that learning opportunity has gone. They can't reflect on 
what was going through my mind at the time that made me think I wasn't safe when actually people were saying, hello, welcome, welcome. What was it that made me feel unsafe? And I think as, as a, a black woman, I've been in many circumstances, I'm sure you have, Lou Jane, and some of the other people on the call, where it's not that's not been the case, where we haven't been in that privileged position. So very last thing, very quickly, I'm going to really quickly say, if you've enjoyed this and you're listening to the, the podcast or watching online, please like and subscribe. We do have more events coming up. So um, just keep an eye on Eventbrite on Black All Year. You can follow that and you'll be notified when we have an event. But the last question, and thank you both for, for your participation today. But I want to end on something positive. So what would be one tangible way that you can contribute to an anti-racist future? So either you or advice for others, what would be one tangible thing that people can do? Jamie, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, I'll keep it short and sweet. It, it, for me, something I try to ask myself consistently is, am I doing enough? And I think people don't spend enough time kind of reflecting on what it is that they do. And part of that, what you can do is part of what you know, what you learn, your knowledge. And I think people get too complacent in um, what they know and it needs to be constant. We need to constantly be educating ourselves, having conversations with real life humans, um, not just hiding behind the data. And well, I've got this one friend, it's around really constantly checking yourself and really putting yourself in environments that don't feel comfortable and really reflecting on what is it that, that I can do, what was in my gift to do um, and, and really striving for that and not being afraid to, to be uncomfortable. Thank you. Lou Jane. For me, it's go out there and meet communities, listen to what they have to say and take on board what they have to say. That's the big one. Just, yeah, show up and be there with communities. Yeah. And and I would add, just get curious, It's uh, which I think is kind of pulls those two together. You, to me, there's a real um, excitement in learning and in in finding out about different people because actually once you start finding out about people and cultures they're fascinating and they're exciting and and actually sometimes they're they're just you know you want to pinch bits that's another question altogether about appropriation but you know there, there is that just go out there and, and enjoy them melanie i saw you had your hand up there i was just going to say really but more of what what you've all said really get informed about what you know be aware of what's going on around you and, and and think about how that might be impacting on on people who are being targeted by that. Be informed about what's happening and challenge people. It's you know, you can you can challenge if it's a dangerous situation, you could, you know, like some somebody being attacked on a bus or something, you could just go and sit next to them and make up a name. Hello, Frank. I saw your mother the other day. How are you? And just step in between. Thank you, Melanie. So we're going to wrap it up there. We could have gone on for another hour, I'm sure, but um, hopefully you found that really useful. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Lou Jane. Um, it's been really interesting discussing it with you. And thank you to everybody who's joined us today. Bye. Bye.